Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome, everybody. We're going to open with a blessing by Father Charles, uh, Father Joseph. <laughs> yeah, someone. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon Thee, the heavenly God, as upon a Father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, be Thy name, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Bow down your heads to the Lord. The blessing of the Lord and His mercy come upon you through His grace and His love for mankind at all times, both now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Joseph. Welcome, everybody. Um, we are going to get sh started very shortly. For those of you who don't know, my name is Melanie Baker. I'm the Associate Director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Deacon Sabatino couldn't be with us tonight, so I'm your substitute. And I don't know if any of you have been able to watch the uh, PowerPoint that I've had going on with the pictures of our various sisters who are taking courses with the Magdala Apostolate. But one of the great joys of my life the past few months has been to help administer these classes that we're doing with these religious sisters. Um, and so I would just ask that you all keep them in prayer, especially right now, simply because they're finishing up their biblical catechetics lecture. And then we have a number of new communities who are considering coming on and joining us for the next semester. I wish you all could join in and see these beautiful faces and just the, the joyful spirits that all of them have. Uh, it's been such a blessing for the Institute to be able to offer these entire semester-long courses for uh, religious women. So I do ask that you keep them in prayer. Because we already introduced him last week, and I imagine most of you were here, he needs no further introduction. Please welcome back Dr. Bill Marshner. Well, good evening, everybody. I come before you today sadly disfigured because of an unfortunate altercation with a tree branch. Yes. Well, anyway, if you have your handout for tonight, we are moving to the central issues connected with the topic of predestination and reprobation. Now, I told you last time that predestination is the part of God's providence that deals with the disposition of supernatural gifts, 
the gifts intended to bring people to supernatural salvation. Okay? Now, uh, I'll raise the question, is predestining anyone a suitable thing for God to do? Well, we agreed in the discussion of providence last week that it's suitable for God to have an advanced plan for his created universe. So, to that extent, it's certainly a suitable thing to do. And we also said last time that uh, prearranging for supernatural gifts involves something special because the end called eternal life is something very special. You cannot get there by your natural abilities. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many natural virtues you have. I don't care how strong you are. You cannot get to heaven by your natural abilities. Okay? So if God intends anyone to reach that end, and he does, he has got to provide aids, which will, so to speak, heave them over there to the other side. Uh, I, I thought of the, I've been reading those um, old-time sea ship novels of Patrick O'Brien, and I thought of the example of a landlubber who gets on board a ship and is told to climb up the mainmast and get into uh, the lookout up there. And uh, <laughs> he can't do it. You know, those who have been raised from young children at sea can scamper up those ropes like monkeys. But if you put me on board of a ship, I couldn't get up there. As a matter of fact, I have a terrible memory about climbing ropes. We were supposed to do that when I was in grade school, and I was the kid in the class who could never get up a rope. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, 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 I couldn't do it, but somebody could push me. If somebody's underneath giving a push, I could get up there. Clear? So supernatural grace is the push people need to get beyond the natural happiness proportionate to them and all the way over to the supernatural happiness, which is proportionate, so to speak, to God alone. Because after all, this is our salvation, to become sharers in God's knowledge, knowing himself as he knows himself in Christ, and loving him as he loves himself in the Holy Spirit. So we need to be pushed to that supernatural fulfillment. So it's appropriate for God to have a plan for the distribution of those gifts. Okay. Now then, it would seem that predestining anyone is still not a suitable thing for God to do. Uh, why wouldn't it be? Well... It wouldn't be suitable if predestination involves imposing necessariness on anybody's choices. Okay? But it doesn't. 
It doesn't impose necessariness on anybody's choices. Now, I talked to you about this last week, okay? There's a necessary conditional. You ready for this box stuff again? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a necessary conditional if God predestines me, comma, I choose the good, nay, the salvific good. All right? That's true. That's true. And it's necessary conditional. However, you can't get, for, and this boxy, that means necessarily. But the necessarily is out here in front of the whole condition. You cannot, with logical validity, move it inside. You can't go from, uh, okay, God predestines me, semicolon, therefore, I must choose the good. Couldn't fail to choose the good. My choosing the good is necessary. Ah, but it isn't. See, it isn't. I gave you examples last time where you cannot move the box inside and put it in front of the consequent. It can only go out front in front of the whole conditional. And uh, I gave this example based on um, the um, necessarily implications of my wife's character. Okay. Let's suppose she's the sort of gal who wouldn't ever marry anybody except for love. Okay. So then necessarily, if she marries me, she loves me. Okay? Well, she married me. Does it now follow that she necessarily loves me? Couldn't do otherwise? I'm all of a sudden uh, in no danger of being rejected as an unworthy spouse? I have proof every other week. <laughs> that is not true. She doesn't necessarily love me. She just contingently loves me. That's all. Just as it was contingent that she married me. See, you only get to put the box inside. You only get to put the box inside if you can also put the box in front of the antecedent. Okay? If she necessarily married me, she would necessarily love me. I mean, I don't know what sort of a marriage that would be. So, commanded by irresistible hormones or something. It's a terrible idea. But God doesn't necessarily predestinate me, does he? Certainly not. I, 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 I have a nice opinion of myself, but I don't think I have that kind of charm in the eyes of the Almighty. Okay? Zeus, perhaps, was irresist irresistibly drawn to beautiful women. But the true God is not irresistibly drawn to any of us. Okay? So his predestining anyone is free. It's a contingent, free decision on God's part. And therefore, any choices that I make remain free and contingent. All right? 
Now that's about the fourth time we've been through that. Is it beginning to get? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it, predestination does not impose necessariness on anybody's choices. All right, let's consider another objection. It would be wrong for God to predestine anybody if it involved God's loving some people and not loving others. Okay? But it doesn't. It doesn't. I want you to get out your handy Bible and again thumb to a book which the Protestants don't have. It's the Book of Wisdom, chapter 11 and verse 24. Who hath it? Who will serve as electrics? Tor. What? Yes, ma'am. For you love all things that are, and loathe nothing that you have not, that, and loathe nothing that you have made. Yes, that's it. For what you hated, you would not have fashioned. Yeah. God loves everything he has made and hates nothing, fails to love anything he has made. So that doctrine is in scripture, if you have the right scripture, the full Bible. The doctrine is in scripture, okay? And if predestination were inconsistent with that doctrine, well, that would be a problem, big problem. But it isn't. Predestining some and not others does not involve God's not loving anybody. Ah, but wait. Doesn't it involve God's loving some people more than others? Ah, huh? well, sure. Of course it does. God wills to those whom he has predestinated graces which he has not willed to other people. Okay? God wills some good for everything he has made, but not all the same goods and not every possible good. Um, God doesn't waste his benefits. What would be the point of willing sanctifying grace as a benefit to a centipede. The centipede can't use it. It's not a good to him, her, it, it. Right? Right. And likewise, I don't see what I would do with an extra pair of legs. God did not will me the good that he has willed the average horse. They are quadrupeds, powerful beasts, great runners. He hasn't willed me that good. Well, I don't miss it. I don't really need it. I don't think I was owed it. It's not in accordance with my nature. Right. So God wills some goods to some creatures that he doesn't will to other creatures. And if you're dealing with the same kind of creature, God loves, God wills more good to some than to others of the same kind. Okay? Consider two acorns. 
One falls in a sunny meadow where, nourished by sunshine and rain, it will wax and spread branches in which the birds will rejoice and we will all benefit from the shade. Yes? Another acorn falls in the forest floor. Well, there are other big trees around. The poor little baby oak has to shoot up scrawny. And if it ever gets big enough to get any light at all, it's going to be a pretty narrow tree. You know what I mean? So, did God love the oak in the meadow more? Well, he willed it more good. Is that all right? Sure. Why is it all right? Because we don't only need trees in meadows, confound it. We need forests. What's the matter with you? Aren't you good environmentalists? Right. Okay. Lions are always appetitious for prey. They always want some antelope or something to munch. Is it not so? One lion gets fatter because he catches more antelopes. The other lion leads a parched existence going from one seldom-delivered meal to another. Does God love the more starving lion? Yeah, sure. Wills it some good. As much as he wills to the other lion? No. No. And is there something wrong with that? No, what's the matter with you? Don't you want some antelopes to survive? Right. Okay, so it's perfectly okay for God to will more good to some people than he wills to others. Okay, nothing wrong with that. We all know that that has to be the case as long as we're dealing with goods in the natural order. Okay, God willed for some the good of facial beauty. Not to me. <laughs> God willed for some the benefits of high prosperity. Not to me. Okay. God willed me the talent for my job. But it's a heck of a lousy paying job. <laughs> what can I tell you? Okay. We all know that there's an uneven distribution of benefits in the natural order. Some have more money, some more brains, some more talent, some more beauty, some more charm of figure. Whereas others are cursed with avoir du poids. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, supernatural gifts are not owed at all. Grace is not owed to anybody. Eternal life is not owed to anybody. Okay? Now, if I owe something, justice requires me to pay my debt. Okay? But if I don't owe anything, justice doesn't mandate me to distribute it. Know what I mean? Yeah. 
Okay. So a good not owed can be willed in varying degrees. And after all, to love is simply to will a good for the one loved. That's the definition of it. And it's a good definition to keep in mind. To love someone is not to be in an emotional tailspin over that person. To love someone is to will good for that person, as you would will it for yourself. Clear enough? Okay. Now then, I come to a question that might seem to be a little bit beside the point, but isn't. Is your predestination something real in you, like, say, an invisible seal upon your soul? Okay. In other words, is predestination something like the character that's given with certain sacraments, like a sign, a tattoo on the soul? And the answer is no. No. By its nature, being predestined is just being known in a certain way. Being known to be an intended beneficiary of these gifts. Okay? And being known is, not, is never something real in the object known. It's real only in the knower. See that whiteboard behind me? I almost said blackboard dates me, you know. See this thing behind me? I know it. Sure I do. I'm aware of it. I conceptualize it. I can describe it. I know it. Does my knowing that blackboard amount to anything real in the board? No. No. Yeah, I understand. That idiot Hegel disagreed. That idiot Hegel thought that to be known had to be something real in the known object. And that would make an intrinsic difference between this blackboard and the ones I don't know. Ridiculous. Being predestined is being foreknown in a certain way. And being known is not a real trait in the thing known. But only in the knower. So your predestination is something real in God. But not in you. Okay. Let's take an example from the natural order, just to make sure you understand this. Suppose God has known from the beginning of the world that you, who were to be born in, what do you want, 1955, would be the greatest basketball player of the 60s. Okay? Well, is that anything real in you? Even after you're born? Here we are in 1955, you're a squalling baby in a hospital. Unless you had a home birth, very lucky. 
Well, you're a squalling baby. Is there anything real in you that amounts to saying, you're destined for basketball greatness, my son? No. Of course not. Of course not. Now, I know there are superstitions that uh, seem to go the other way. We imagine that uh, there's some inscribed, intrinsic, oh, I don't know, power or virtue, whereby from the moment of birth, a future president is marked out. Well, at least we knew that before the last couple were elected. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) It's a superstition. Okay. Now I move on to what's really the heart of tonight's talk. Namely, the analysis of reprobation. This is in the question on predestination. It's Article 3. And uh, if you like, the question is, does God reprobate anyone? And the answer is sure. Sure. St. Paul gets his text on this from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated, says the Lord. Well, loved him less. All right? That's all that means. Jacob was predestined, I guess you could say, but Esau was reprobated. Okay. Now, what exactly is God doing in reprobating anyone? Okay. In terms of having a plan for rational creatures to attain supernatural Fulfillment. All it means is, all it is to reprobate is nothing but to allow some to fail. God allows some to fail. How does he allow them to fail? All right, if you will. By not willing them a certain good, a certain grace which he could have willed, but didn't. Okay? I'll I'll go that far. Aquinas says the same. And uh, it sounds worse than it is. Allowing someone to fail. Allowing is willing to permit. Is not willing the failure. And what about not willing a grace? All right. Here's my next little technical uh, treasure for you. Not willing a thing is not the same as counter-willing it. Counter-willing is willing that the thing not be. Okay? Not willing it is just not willing that the thing be. Here's my favorite example drawn from... uh, Recent African economic history. I know basically nothing about the economics of Kenya. So I don't will that the Kenyan government devalue its currency. 
I have no volition about the matter at all. It doesn't follow that I will them not to devalue it. I don't will them to devalue it. I don't will them not to. Willing them not to would be counter-willing, do you see? Not willing is not the same as counter-willing. Okay? Now, I admit that to get this distinction, you have to be willing to correct a few habits and use the appropriate language a little bit more precisely than we're used to. Okay? A kid says, I don't want to. And usually means the same as, I want it not. But when we grow up, we become able to distinguish between not willing and counter-willing. Okay? I'm not willing that my wife marry another upon my demise. No. Though ego may suggest I should. But no, I don't, I don't, I don't have any volition about that. The matter will be out of my hands. Right? Do we all see how different that is from willing that she not marry another? Ah. People have done that, you know. In the good old days, there was a considerable freedom about what you, about what you could put into a marriage contract and what you could put into uh, the inheritance, because the wife had to inherit from the husband, of course, who was the official owner of all joint property. Good. And you could write into the contract that the wife loses her inheritance if, upon my demise, she marries another. That's counter-willing. Does everybody get the difference? Yeah. Well, this points out Calvin's first mistake. He did not draw the distinction between not willing and counter-willing. Okay. He thought that if God did not will you this grace, then he willed that you not have it. Does everybody see? That's mistake number one. Not willing is not the same thing as counter-willing. Not willing someone this particular grace is consistent with loving that person because I will that person other goods. Okay, I just hadn't thought about this one. I'm not willing them that one. I don't know, whatever. Plans require things. But willing them not to have that grace. Oh my that would be an injurious sort of volition. Does everybody see? Okay. Now then, I move on to this question. Is someone's being reprobated the reason why he or she perishes? If I end up in hell, is the reason I'm there Precisely that God did not will these and those graces for me. 
And the answer is no. Reprobation is not the cause of anyone's perishing. Au contraire. We have it in scripture what the cause is. Open up to the prophet Hosea. Yes, the prophet, the prophet Hosea, chapter 13 and verse 9 thereof. And I hope you have the right translation. <laughs> Who's got Hosea? Ah, there she is. Speak electrics. Though Ephraim says, how rich I have become, I have made a fortune. Page turn. All his gain shall not suffice him for the guilt of his sin. Bad news. Well, here's what it's supposed to say. (laughs) Hosea 13.9 says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. And if you don't find it there, the same idea is in chapter 14, verses 1 to 2. Uh, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. That's right. Hosea 14, 1 to 2. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by what? By thine own iniquity. Same point in chapter 13, if we can find (laughs) exactly where it is. Uh, Modern translations are all over the place with the versification of the book of Isaiah. The the text in the Hebrew is in pretty bad shape. And you certainly do not want to quote the version in Greek. Um, Because the Greek says, I mean to destroy you, O Israel, and who can come to your help? Oops. (laughs) No, 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 we don't want the Septuagint this time. (laughs) At least it's making a different point. No, what we can say is, on the basis of Scripture, that a person's perishing is caused by his or her own doing. A people's falling from grace is caused by his or her own doing. That's the reason someone perishes. In other words, the absence, if you will, of the grace God did not will for you is not the cause of any wrongdoing you do. Okay? In the circumstance where you don't have that grace. Uh-huh. The absence of grace is not a cause of sin. Ill will is a cause of sin. Huh? Yeah. 20 minutes, she says. All right, dictatrix. I will try to be... <laughs> now look, in the person who... There is this profound difference between predestination and reprobation. In the person predestined, okay... There is not anything there bearing on eternal life. 
that isn't an effect of predestination. Okay? God has given us, God is working in us to give us both to will and to accomplish. Okay? From the very first thought you have of turning to God or doing a salvific good, the thought is from God. Any grace that aids you is from God. Your eventual attainment of heaven is from God and is an effect of predestination. But if you are reprobated, there is an element in you which is not from reprobation. Namely, your own wrongdoing. Your own wrongdoing. That's not an effect of reprobation. That's your doing. Okay. It, and, and by the way, the cause of your punishment in the next life is not that you were reprobated. I'm in hell because I was reprobated. <laughs> no. You're in hell because you stuck a knife in your brother. Because <laughs> you stole from your aunt. Whatever. Yes. So hell is a punishment, of course. And punishment is for wrongdoing. And not handing out Grace's hand over fist is not wrongdoing. Uh-huh. So be exact here. Uh, this is another mistake of Calvin's. He assumes that any sin in you is an effect of reprobation. So you will be able to say, I'm in hell because I was reprobated. <laughs> yep. Poor me. Now, why in the world would Calvin think that if you just didn't receive a grace, the effect of that would be a sin, a moral wrongdoing, a turning away from God, a rejection of God? Well, the answer you probably already know. Calvin's crackpot doctrine of total depravity. Okay? In other words, the only thing that a human being can produce by his or her natural efforts unassisted by grace is sin. Okay? Luther had the same ideas. Anybody remember the lecture I gave on Luther? Yeah. Anything you do of yourself is sin. Oh, gee, I just helped this old lady across the street. Sin! <laughs> I, I, I pay my debts. Sin! Because Calvin can't distinguish between moral good and salvific good. And lots of other reasons as well. But the main reason is his doctrine of total depravity. Ever since the sin of Adam. We have been unable, you and I, all of his descendants, have been unable to produce in our wills anything but wickedness. Okay? The only preventative of wickedness, the only band-aid for wickedness, is grace. Okay? So if you didn't get the grace, your sin is what? Inevitable. 
like poisoned water from a poisoned well. Inevitable. Therefore, Calvin overlooks the fact that the sin in your life is just plain not from God. He's not to blame for it. You, 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 you did this to me, God. Yes, I stuck a knife in my brother. You know the reason I did that? I did that because you didn't give me any fraternal grace, any Philadelphian grace. You was bad to me, oh God. <laughs> These are absolutely unworthy suggestions. God is in no way the cause of anyone's wrongdoing. And the mere absence of this or that grace is not the cause of anything, anyone's wrongdoing. I'll give you an example of that from the natural order. Okay? Back in the good old days, when the list of carcinogens was not yet so long, back in the good old days, we studied in schoolrooms more or less coated in asbestos. <laughs> it prevented the school from burning down. Very nice. Sort of. Then they decided asbestos was wicked and they took it out. Take away the asbestos and now there's a school fire. Did the absence of the asbestos cause the fire? No, of course not. That young idiot with a match caused the fire. Yes? Okay. Now then, what about this? Pre reprobation then is God's allowing somebody to sin. Okay? He's allowing it. He's not willing it, but he is allowing it. Isn't it wrong to allow anyone to do a wrong which you could prevent? Huh? Could God prevent uh, Joe Stalin from sinning by... Um, well, there are various means, but uh, let's stick with the supernatural ones. By zapping that dictator with unconscionable amounts of grace. Well, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> but there is no such thing as moral wrong in allowing someone else to sin. I mean, unless you have a special obligation towards that person. Okay, how would it be if um, I'm a campaigner for drug-free schools? Yep, don't want any drugs in this school. Now, I have a kid in that school. If I find drugs on my kid, oh, oh boy, there will be preventative measures taken. Indeed, ferocious vengeance will be taken. So suppose instead I find the drugs on your kid. Am I allowed to beat up, spank, and otherwise? No. Okay. Now, yeah, I mean, it, 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 if I'm in schoolyard responsibility, I mean, I might have some responsibility to try to check these things out. But if I, I don't have any special responsibility, I don't have any obligation. 
to look into these matters. And I want you to think about this for sure. Because the point I am now making is absolutely crucial to the correct evaluation of a free society. If it, if allowing to sin were the same as willing sin, good government would have to be a total police state. See what I mean? Allowing sin is not the same as willing the sin. That's why it isn't necessarily wrong to allow the sin. And arranging that no sin happens thanks to your own exercise of power, well, end of freedom, if you're like God and work internally, or it's the end of political freedom, if you work like a government. Okay? Not only is there a law against every sin, but there is enforcement of the law against every sin. Ha girls, have you been over in that dormitory gossiping about the boys? Do you think that was charitable? I'm sorry, I didn't think of that. It wasn't charitable? Then you have broken the law. You shall be punished. <laughs> no, not good, right? Not good. So, allowing sin is not itself doing wrong. That's why God's providence can contain these allowances. And God isn't doing any wrong. If the sin occurs, the sinner did the wrong. And since the sinner did the wrong, and the moral wrong is in the sinner, but not in the predestined person, there is an el or qual predestined anyway, there's an element in the sinner that is not from God, not from reprobation. And Calvin is wrong about that too. All right. Suppose, how many minutes? Dick Tricks, five. <laughs> Suppose God has chosen you. Well, wait a minute, a minute. Prior matter. Is being predestined a matter of being chosen by God? Sure. It's in the Bible. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 4 thereof. Who has chosen us in him, in Christ, <coughs> before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. To be predestined is a matter of being chosen by God. Okay, so we know that from the Bible. But now what about, what about this? What about the fairness issue? If guy A is about the same as guy B, and guy A is chosen, is there an injustice to guy B? No. Certainly not. Certainly not. Okay. Let me put it to you this way. I was not exactly besieged by girls who wanted to marry me. But suppose I had been. <laughs> besieged. 
by girls who wanted to marry me. But I chose to marry her over there. Did I do an injustice to all those other girls? No. <laughs> well, they were about the same. They were nice girls, too. They were pretty. Good. Too bad. I chose her. That's all. That's the end of the story. No one is owed being chosen. That's true in marriage, and it's also true in respect to eternal life. Okay. Now I come to a toughie. At least some people think it's a toughie. Suppose God has chosen you. Did he do it because he had foreknowledge of the good deeds you would do? Foreknowledge of the good fruit that you have borne or will bear in cooperation with his grace. Okay? Once again, the answer is crystal clear from Scripture. All right, who's my electrix? Want the book of Titus. Little tiny book of Titus, don't turn the pages too fast, you'll miss it. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 thereof. Yes, ma'am. Verse 5. He saved us not because of any righteous deeds we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the baptism of the new birth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's enough. There it is. He saved us not because of any good we had done, but out of his mercy. Okay? Now, there have been several heresies about this. The oldest one, I think, goes back to Origen, Alexandrian Christian writer, great man in some respects, but not always careful. Origen thought that God knew the good and the bad that you had done in a previous life when you were a pure soul up in heaven. And thanks to God's knowledge of that, he assigned you to the camp of the saints on earth or the camp of the goats. Okay? Not true. Then there was that creep Pelagius, another heretic, who maintained that our good works are the cause of grace in us, at least in this sense, we begin on our own to do good. And God, seeing that we've made a good start, says, oh, promising, promising youth, here's some grace for you. Okay? That's at least semi-Pelagianism. Outright Pelagianism says that good deeds, quite frankly, earn grace. Moral good living earns the grace to be saved. Heresy. Okay? Moral good living can predispose to cooperation with grace. It's important, sure. But it doesn't earn the grace whereby you are saved. Nothing earns it. For God has given it to you out of his pure mercy. All right? We okay on that one? There were fancier versions of this mistake in the later Middle Ages. 
uh, particularly concocted by Henry of Ghent and by Peter Aureol. You've probably never heard of those guys. And um, there's no particular reason why you should. But um, um, there was a slight preparation for Calvinism in the doctrine of Peter Ariel. Ariel was centuries earlier, never, never met Calvin and never entertained Calvin's heresies. But nevertheless, he made a mistake about this business and uh, it, um, it uh, abetted Calvin because Ariel denied that there was anything in the reprobated that was not an effect of reprobation. Just as in the predestined, there's nothing that isn't an effect of predestination. And there it is. There's the idea that reprobation um, produces the moral wrong. All right. Real quick, because I'm out of time here, and you're out of patience. Is your predestination sure? Is it set in cement? Or can you lose it? Well, it's sure. Okay. If you are predestined by God, you will be saved in the end. Just because you're in a state of grace now doesn't mean that you're surely predestined. But if in fact you are predestined, you will be saved. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in that sense, it's sure. But what does sure mean? Now, you are just incredibly lucky. Because to explain the difference between your salvation's being sure and its being necessitated, I would have to go off on another technical uh, tirade. And you don't want that at this hour of the night. So you can ask about it if you want. Your predestination is sure. It's set in cement, but that doesn't make any choice on your part necessary. And finally, does it make sense to ask other people, especially the saints, to pray for your predestination? Have you ever asked anybody to pray for your predestination? Probably not. doesn't occur to most people. And in one sense, it doesn't make any sense, okay? Insofar as your predestination means that you are to receive grace, and that's in God's plan. It's just in the plan already. The saints have nothing to do with it. But alongside the plan, or connected with the plan, there is always the execution of the plan, okay? Distinguish the plan, well, distinguish the adoption of the plan from the execution of the plan, the carrying out of the plan. Okay? If it's not adopted, it's not a plan at all. It's just a possibility. Once the plan is adopted, it's a plan. But now, it has to be carried out. And the carrying out is called governance. The carrying out is God's control of events shaping of events, fine-tuning events. 
so that all things will work together for good for you if you are called according to God's purpose. Yes, that you can pray for because that's a variable. There are lots of ways God can put his plan into execution. Some of those ways might make it easier for you to respond to his grace, some harder. Some harder. Yeah. All you married guys. Yeah. Would your... um, See, you're laughing. You think I'm going to make a crack about your wives. I'm not. But all you married guys, don't you think that it's easier for you to be saved this way than if God had called you to be a priest? Wouldn't that have been kind of tough in some respects? Being a priest is a higher calling. Wouldn't deny it for a moment. But it's also a harder calling. Especially when it means you have to associate a great deal with other priests. Now, I could give you a Latin tag about that, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to bid you a good night. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Marshner. Before you all get up and go on break, you're willing to do a few questions, aren't you, Dr. Marshner? If we keep it very, very short. Two. Two questions. Okay. We're going to have a very, very brief Q&A. Before you ask your question, think to yourself, is it one sentence long? Does it end with a question mark? Does it have to do with the topic at hand? Okay? Are we ready? Here we go. So if you're not predestined, can you still go to heaven? If you're not predestined, can you still go to heaven? Answer, no. Because then... Uh, you are not uh, in God's plan in such a way that you will receive any supernatural gifts, or at least the ones you'll need. And without them, it's impossible to be saved. Just as without faith, it's impossible to please God. Is God the only one capable of true reprobation? Well, yeah. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the devil might like to tempt you towards the behavior of the reprobate and so on, but the devil uh, cannot um, uh, defeat God's plan insofar as that plan has been efficaciously willed. No, the devil, I mean, look, look at it this way. Um, God wills in a general way that everybody gets saved, sure. And in just the same way, I will in a general way that all the kids in school graduate. Huh. Okay. Um, and I don't will that any of them not graduate. But I have no particular volition about some of them. Okay. And um, 
Okay, I brought up this example. Now, where was I going with it? <laughs> you did this to me. Where was I going with that? Um, yeah, uh, well, God wills in a general way that everybody be saved. But now, let's suppose that the devil gets into the act and tempts some people in such a way that they turn away from God, turn away from grace, and so on. As a result of those uh, adverse conversions, if you will, um, they're not saved. Okay? God would have preferred them to be saved. There's, uh, his antecedent will is for them to be saved. But his consequent will is not for them to be saved. Okay? And um, in just the same way, you know, I have a, I have a general uh, volition that all the kids in school graduate. Um, but um, there are various uh, factors for evil that enter into the lives of those kids. And, and um, video games, TV, and other barbarities take them away from their studies. So now you ask me, do I will kids who didn't study to graduate? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Marshall. Thank you. All right, I will see you all on Sunday. God bless you all and safe travels home. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.